as I mentioned, uh, as we pick up this morning's passage, uh, we find ourselves at, at the end of the journey to Jerusalem, a journey that began roughly 10 chapters ago, going all the way back to, to chapter 9. Jesus, having just arrived here in chapter 20 in the great city in which his very own words would be fulfilled, the redemptive promise of a crucified and risen Messiah. Jerusalem, the focal point of, of where this story's been headed. Keep in mind that, that at this point, we talked about this a little bit last week as we looked at the triumphal entry of Jesus into the city, that people are pouring into Jerusalem in droves, having come for the annual celebration of Passover. That's what's in the background right now, that according to the Mosaic law, the journey to Jerusalem for Passover was required of Jewish men, and yet many women and children would come along for that ride as well, so that uh, the annual Passover feast brought in upwards of six times the normal population. We're talking uh, roughly 200,000 people and about 100,000 uh, sheep for temple sacrifices. That, that's the scene. A several days long rehearsing and celebrating the story of the Exodus, God's rescuing of his people from Egyptian enslavement in the days of Moses. It's that great story of redemption in which Jesus now finds himself immersed within the city in the midst of the transpiring events associated with what we now refer to as the Passion Week. Soon to establish, establish mind you, a greater Exodus in his own blood not from Egypt, but the far greater shackles of sin and death. The imagery is just crazy from this point on to the end of, of Luke's gospel account. If you pick up the story in verse 1 of chapter 20, Luke tells us, One day as Jesus was teaching the people in the temple and preaching the gospel, the chief priests and the scribes with the elders came up and said to him, Tell us by what authority you do these things or who it is that gave you this authority. Remember, Jesus has just ridden into the city of Jerusalem in such a way as to demonstrate himself to be the promised messianic king, a purposeful, intentional fulfilling of Zechariah's prophecy in what's now come to be known as that triumphal entry. The very first Palm Sunday, a rolling out of the red carpet, so to speak. Only then to drive the money changers and sellers out of the temple and make the very temple of God his own pulpit. All these things without the authority of an official priest or scribe as he continues to teach with the same authority that we've seen since his earliest days of ministry in Galilee. You, you may recall going all the way back to chapter 4 that Jesus was offered glory and authority in his wilderness temptation by Satan. As the father of lies established this call to worship, inviting Jesus to break the very first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me. How did Jesus respond there? Well, Luke tells us that he responded in faithfulness, in fidelity to the Father, in unwavering commitment to the Father's plan of redemption. Nothing was going to take him off course. So that Jesus' authority here in chapter 20, it's not a demonic authority having come from the compromising of his convictions, but rather a divine authority as the Son of God. That Jesus didn't simply quote the, the rabbis and teachers who came before him like many in his day did, but rather he spoke on his own authority, the very incarnation of truth, proclaiming the truth in power. You have heard that it was said, but I say to you. Now, Jesus had, had prophesied back in chapter 9 
The Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. Looking at those first couple verses of this morning's passage, who is it that shows up on the scene? Questioning the authority by which Jesus ministers and teaches? None other than the elders and chief priests and scribes. The very ones Jesus had predicted would reject and plot against him. A group of men representing the, the Sanhedrin, the Jewish Supreme Court on religious matters, so that, that this appears to be a more official body of representatives here seeking to entangle Jesus in his words, which we've seen on a couple of occasions along the way in Luke's gospel account. One example being the lawyer who stood up to put Jesus to the test back in chapter 10. How does Jesus respond? Verse 3 tells us he answered them, I also will ask you a question. Now tell me, was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? And they discussed it with one another, saying, if we say from heaven, he will say, well, why did you not believe him? Why didn't you believe John? But if we say from man, all the people will stone us to death, for they are convinced that John was a prophet. It's a brilliant question on Jesus' part. A question that, that corners those seeking to corner him. Right, John the Baptist, he was popular among the people. Many having received John's baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins going all the way back to chapter 3. A baptism that chapter 7 tells us that the religious leaders themselves had rejected. In addition, it was at the hands of John that Jesus received his own baptism the anointing and coronation ceremony of heaven's priest king so that John not only understood himself to be the forerunner, a herald called to prepare the way of the coming Messiah, but he understood Jesus to be the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That if the religious leaders truly believed that, that John's baptism was from heaven, they would have received John's message and baptism for themselves. So that their honest answer to Jesus' question, it's we believe that the baptism of John is from man. And yet they can't say that either because they're surrounded by a crowd of people who believe that John truly was a prophet of God. On the one hand, they're too arrogant to admit that they're wrong. And on the other hand, they're too fearful of man to stand up for what they actually believe in. Verse 7 goes on to tell us, so they answered that they, they didn't know where John's baptism came from. And Jesus said to them, well, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. But in their refusal to, to answer Jesus' question, the religious leaders, they undermined their own credibility. And professing to not know whether John's authority was from God, they have no leg to stand on in professing whether or not Jesus' authority is from God. And then we see Jesus steer into a, a parable, verse 9. He began to tell the people this story. A, a man planted a vineyard and let it out to tenants and went into another country for a long while. Unlike the religious leaders, we'll see soon enough, Jesus has absolutely no fear of, of man himself as he continues to stand up for what he truly believes here further perpetuating the plots of violence against him and telling a parable that stands as an indictment against the religious leaders. Verse 19 will tell us that in a moment. 
The story of a man who, who planted a vineyard and left it to the care of tenant farmers while off on a long journey. A practice which wasn't uncommon in Jesus' day. The landowner receiving somewhere between 25 and 50% of the crop is rent. It's the, it's the kind of story with, with a, a type of imagery about it that, that many of Jesus' listeners would have recognized right away. The many examples of vineyard imagery in the Bible, one of a number of different ways that Israel is described throughout the Old Testament. One of the more well-known examples being the famous vineyard song of Isaiah. Isaiah chapter 5 starts off with these words. Let me sing for my beloved, my love song concerning his vineyard. My beloved had a vineyard on a very fertile hill. He dug it and cleared it of stones and planted it with choice vines. He built a watchtower in the midst of it and hewed out a wine vat in it. And he looked for it to yield grapes, but it yielded wild grapes. And now, O inhabitants of Jerusalem and men of Judah, judge between me and my vineyard. What more was there to do for my vineyard that I have not done for it? When I looked for it to yield grapes, why did it yield wild grapes? And now I will tell you what I will do to my vineyard. I will remove its hedge and it shall be devoured. I will break down its wall and it shall be trampled down. I will make it a waste. It shall not be pruned or hoed and briars and thorns shall grow up. I will also command the clouds that they rain no rain upon it. For the vineyard of the Lord of hosts is the house of Israel and the men of Judah are his pleasant planting. And he looked for justice, but behold, bloodshed. For righteousness, but behold, an outcry. And Isaiah's song, it, it starts off as a love song before unfolding into an oracle of, of judgment. Israel, referred to as, as God's vineyard, treated with tender loving care by the vineyard owner, the Lord himself, only to reward God, not with good fruit, but with wild grapes. In the Old Testament, many of you know the, the, the story that we see Israel's disobedience time and time again. Israel is God's adulterous wife, his stiff-necked, rebellious firstborn son, his straying flock, his fruitless vineyard, producing the wild grapes of sin and idolatry in her covenant disobedience, bringing about divine judgment upon herself. To use the imagery of Isaiah's song, the, the removal of her protective hedge, the breaking down of her protective wall, briars and thorns overcoming her, drought overwhelming her, alluding to the future exile that Israel would experience. The Old Testament prophets left looking forward to, to a day when the vine would finally be fruitful. Jesus declaring himself to be that fruitful vine in John chapter 15, the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament prophets had longed for. The true vine who yielded not the wild grapes of sin and idolatry, but rather the fruit of love, righteousness, and obedience all the way to the cross. Coming back to this morning's passage, that's the kind of imagery that would have come to mind for many of of Jesus's listeners so that they would have understand God to be the landowner and Israel to, to be the vineyard in Jesus's parable. And yet notice, we'll see this in a moment, that Jesus puts a twist on the story. Whereas Isaiah's song was about the failure of Israel, the vineyard, 
Jesus' parable is about the failure of Israel's religious leaders, the tenant farmers. Look at verse 10. Jesus goes on with the story. When the time came, he, the landowner, sent a servant to the tenants so that they would give him some of the fruit of the vineyard. But the tenants beat him and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent another servant. But they also beat and treated him shamefully and sent him away empty-handed. And he sent yet a third And this one also they wounded and cast out. As the parable goes, the vineyard owner sends three of his servants that they might collect the appropriate percent of the crop as as rent. In all three cases, the the tenant farmers resorting to abuse and mistreatment of the servants rather than giving the vineyard owner what's rightfully his. The servants in the parable representing the, the prophets of old abused and mistreated by Israel's many religious leaders throughout the years. John the Baptist, the the latest in a long line of prophets to be counted among the mistreated servants of God, his head served up on a platter. Jesus continues, verse 13. Then the owner of the vineyard said, What shall I do? I, I will send my beloved son. Perhaps they will respect him. But when the tenants saw him, They said to themselves, this is the heir. Let us kill him so that the inheritance may be ours. And they threw him out of the vineyard and killed him. Let me just pause for a second here. Because we don't just see the beauty of God the Son in this morning's passage, but God the Father too. Notice how Jesus paints a picture of the patience and long-suffering of God in the vineyard owner's continued sending of his servants. Each one of them mistreated, and yet he sends a second, and he sends a third, only to then send his own beloved son, whom the wicked tenant farmers would no more respect than the many servants who had come before him. Casting him out of the vineyard, murdering him for their own selfish gain. The unmistakable representation, the son in the parable of Jesus Christ. What did did God the Father declare at Jesus' baptism going all the way back to chapter 3, verse 22? You are my beloved son. With you I am well pleased. That as the, the prophets were God's beloved servants, so Jesus is God's beloved son. That as the religious leaders were God's uh, tenant farmers, so Jesus is God's appointed heir of all things. Hebrews chapter 1, verse 2. The eternal, divine, beloved son of God on whom the perfect approval of the Father and anointing power of the Spirit rest. Sent to proclaim the good news of the kingdom as the Father's final appeal to rebellious Israel and her leaders. And yet they chose to drive Jesus out of their lives, casting him out. It's one of the many fulfillments of Isaiah chapter 53. He, Jesus, was despised and rejected by men. As John says in in his gospel account, he came to his own and his own people did not receive him. Remember what Jesus said uh, to the scribes back in chapter 11? Woe to you, for you build the tombs of the prophets whom your fathers killed. So you are witnesses and you consent to the deeds of your fathers, for they killed them and you build their tombs. 
Therefore also the wisdom of God said, I will send them prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and persecute, so that the blood of all the prophets shed from the foundation of the world may be charged against this generation from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who perished between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, it will be required of this generation. You're just like your fathers, Jesus had said, hearts far from God, guilty of greed, hypocrisy, and, and pride. Your fathers killed the prophets whose writings spoke of a promised Messiah. And you continue in their bloodshed as you seek to kill the one whom the prophets spoke of. I mean, consider that in a few short days, according to Luke's gospel account, that Jesus would not only be beaten, wounded, and treated shamefully, as had the servants in the parable been. But he too would be thrown out of the vineyard, so to speak. Crucified outside of the gate, outside of the city walls. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 12. What then, Jesus says, will the owner of the vineyard do to those who killed his son, who mistreated his servants? He will come and destroy those tenants and give the vineyard to others. Going back to Jesus' words in uh, chapter 13. Oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings. And you are not willing. Behold, your house is forsaken. And we know this, that not only would Jerusalem know the, the judgment of, of God and the soon-to-come destruction of the city and the temple... In 70 AD, a foreshadowing of the, the judgment to come when Christ returns for all of those who are outside of Jesus. But, but two, that Israel's priests and scribes would no longer lead the people of God as the responsibility for God's vineyard would soon be given to the apostles. Israel's rejection of the Messiah opening the door for the inclusion of the Gentiles at the great banqueting table of heaven's king. Romans 9 through 11 tells us all about that. Those so sure that the kingdom was there standing on the outside and rejecting God's saving promises in Christ. It's a theme we've seen over and over and over again throughout Luke's gospel account. Perhaps the, the most clear depiction being the, the older brother again in the parable of the prodigal son. So close to the music he could feel that thump in his chest so close to the feast that he could smell the meat on the barbecue, so to speak. Yet on the outside, all the while, missing out on the kingdom. When they heard this, verse 16 goes on to tell us, the religious leaders, they said, surely not. This would have been shocking for any first century Jewish person to hear, much less one who stood among Israel's religious elite, believing that, that theirs was a seat at the master's table. In the promised coming of the kingdom of God, surely God wouldn't give the, the vineyard of his kingdom to another. Verse 17, haunting. But he, Jesus, looked directly at them. Can you imagine that piercing glance? He looked directly at them. He said, what then is this that is written? The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. Everyone who falls on that stone will be broken to pieces, and when it falls on anyone, it will crush him. Jesus quotes from the, the very same psalm 
that the crowd sang when he rode into the city on the foal of a donkey. Psalm 118, a hymn of praise to the Lord who defeats his enemies and establishes his kingdom. What does Jesus do? He takes the language of of that very psalm, declaring its ultimate fulfillment in him, the cornerstone of salvation, the sure foundation on which we must build our lives. Otherwise, we fall and are broken in pieces, crushed under the weight of Christ's judgment. As Simeon prophesied back in chapter 2, behold this child, as he held the baby Jesus in his arms, This child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed so that thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. Jesus, the the stone of stumbling over whom many will fall, 1 Peter 2, verse 8. Scorned by the religious leaders of Israel, the stone that the builders rejected. Luke goes on to tell us, The scribes and the the chief priests, they didn't react very well to these words of Jesus. In fact, we're told that they sought to lay hands on him, verse 19, at that very hour. For they perceived that he had told this parable against them. But they feared the people. So they watched him and, and sent spies who pretended to be sincere that they might catch him in something he said so as to deliver him up to the authority and jurisdiction of the governor. They're they're keenly aware that Jesus has just spoken these words against them. The details of the imagery in the parable unmistakably clear. Which in and of itself reveals their hardness of heart, does it not? As they, they move toward fulfilling the very words that Jesus has just spoken against them. The builders in this very moment rejecting the cornerstone of salvation. The tenant farmers seeking to throw God's beloved son out of the vineyard and do away with him. And yet they're, they're unable to harm him at, at this point. Resigned to, to try to entangle him in his words as, as they had attempted to do earlier in this passage. That they might deliver him up to Pontius Pilate. We know that's eventually going to happen in this story. But for now, the best they can do is, is send a... A group of spies in, which if you go and look at at Mark's gospel account, this is fascinating. That group of spies is actually made up of the Pharisees and the Herodians. Two groups that that had one thing in common. Their shared hatred for Jesus. The Pharisees for Jesus' threatening of their religious agenda, which we've seen throughout Luke's gospel account. The Herodians for Jesus' threatening of their political situation, as they had essentially sold themselves out to the Romans. Jesus threatening both with his ministry, his kingdom inauguration. It's amazing how a a shared hatred, a shared wickedness can bring people together in unity, isn't it? He goes on in verse 21. So they asked him, teacher, we know that you speak and, and teach rightly and show no partiality, but truly teach the way of God. Is it lawful for us to give tribute to Caesar or not? First of those words, clearly disingenuous, right? Pharisees and the Herodians don't for a second think highly of Jesus and his teaching. In fact, the other synoptic gospel accounts uh, tell us that Jesus here calls them hypocrites, aware of their malice in seeking to incriminate him. 
In the words of one scholar, the question was, was meant to hang Jesus over the dual horns of a dilemma so that he would impale himself on one or the other. The Roman system of taxation, we, we talked about this with Zacchaeus. It was oppressive to people who lived under that, that system, including the, the Jewish people who were taxed for the privilege of living in their very own land under Roman tyranny. Some even going so far as to, to declare that the paying of taxes to pagan rulers was an act of rebellion against God himself. I mean, after all, Roman currency not only had the image of, of Caesar minted upon it, but, but words describing Caesar that most Jew would have considered blasphemous. In the minds of the Pharisees, paying such taxes would be a, a rebellion against God pitting Jesus against the largely Judean crowd as a traitor. So you have that going on on the one hand. In the minds of the Herodians, to refuse to pay such taxes would be an act of rebellion against the great Caesar himself, pitting Jesus against the Roman government as an insurrectionist. How is he going to get himself out of this one? They think they have him right where they want him. Verse 23. But he, Jesus, perceived their craftiness, And said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. Jesus perceives the craftiness of the, the religious leaders. That language itself, a reminder of the serpent's craftiness all the way back in the garden, Genesis chapter 3. Satan, he has his designs, his schemes. We know this. Paul says it as as such in chapter 6 of Ephesians. That just as we have a a section of our church partnership booklet entitled Practice and Method, so Satan has a a section of his playbook entitled Practice and Method 2. C.S. Lewis does a great job of exposing some of that in his famous screw tape letters. Showing the variety of ways that, that Satan seeks to outwit God's people in his effort to destroy the church. Here, Luke, using that, that language of craftiness in describing the efforts of the religious leaders to destroy Jesus himself. Here, having presented Jesus with a question, one for which it, it seems that there's no promising answer, right? And yet, as we've seen numerous times over, trying to trap the wisdom of God personified is an exercise in futility. Can't be done. It's a losing man's game. In this case, Jesus responds to their question by asking them to produce a denarius. Show me one of these coins, Jesus says, which in doing so, think about this, forces them to reveal that they have one on their person with its godlike image of Caesar and its blasphemous words so that he's already put them on the defense before he ever even says anything else in responding to them. On the one hand, The denarius bears Caesar's image. And so Jesus declares that people should give to Caesar that which is Caesar's. You live, you reap the benefits of living in a a Roman system. You should pay your taxes, Jesus says, which is all the more astounding in knowing what we know about the Roman Empire, is it not? Not only cruel in her oppression of people, keep in mind that what the Persians invented in death by crucifixion, the Romans perfected. But two, with that, under the leadership of a man who thought himself a god. 
Here Jesus articulates that which both Peter and Paul bring to bear in their writings as it pertains to this idea of practicing civil obedience. In the case of Peter and Paul, under the reign of one of history's cruelest emperors, Nero. In short, and we can get into a much deeper discussion when we get to those passages uh, that Peter and Paul write in the New Testament. But in short, we're to submit ourselves to the governing authorities unless commanded to do that which God forbids or forbidden to do that which God commands. That's me boiling down an entire chapter of a systematic theology book into one sentence, basically, so that we can keep focusing on Jesus and his uh, glory in this passage. That we're to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, even when Caesar thinks himself a god. The one thing we never render to Caesar the worship that God and God alone is worthy to receive. That, that as the denarius bore the image of Caesar, so we all bear the image of God and therefore should give ourselves fully to the one whose image we bear. It's a brilliant statement on Jesus' part, particularly knowing that, that the ones he's responding to, Israel and her religious leaders, they had failed to do that very thing. A dusty, barren field where a fruitful vineyard should have been. The wild grapes of sin and idolatry. Imagine the looks on their faces when Jesus responded with these words. We don't have to imagine the response because verse 26 tells us they were not able in the presence of the people to catch him in what he said, but marveling at his answer, they became silent. that even Jesus' opponents can't help but marvel at him. Something greater than the wisdom of Solomon standing before them, going back to chapter 11, the personification of wisdom in the person of Jesus Christ, the one in whom are, are hidden, Paul tells us, Colossians 2.3, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. That the, the queen of Sheba listened to the inferior wisdom of Solomon and she praised the Lord of Israel. The Old Testament tells us. The Ninevites listened to the inferior prophet Jonah and they repented of their sin. In both cases, Gentiles giving glory to God as opposed to the Jewish leaders having rejected Jesus throughout Luke's gospel account. In this case, Jesus leaving those even having rejected him, marveling, speechless in the wake of his response. Here's, here's the, the takeaway because we can kind of get bogged down in, in this teaching at this point in Luke's gospel account. If I can just sort of pare it down and say, this morning's passage, as has been the case throughout Luke's gospel account, this morning's passage brings us face to face with Jesus Christ, God's promised Messiah, Savior, and King. The question is, what will we do with him? Will we reject him like the religious leaders of his day? only to find ourselves on the wrong side of judgment when he returns? Or will we receive him as a sufficient savior and worthy king? Perhaps today is, is the day of salvation for some, the day to, to repent of your sin and to turn to Jesus and trust in him for the forgiveness that can only be found in him, to fall at his feet as king and Lord. And for we who profess to know, love, and, and follow Jesus, if I can just, just kind of grab all of the facets of that multifaceted jewel as we see them in this morning's passage. 
this morning. It's about beholding the glory of the Lord. 2 Corinthians 3, the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ, that without beholding, there is no becoming. Without seeing and savoring, there is no sanctification. And so I I say to, to those who identify themselves as followers of Christ this morning, behold in this morning's passage one greater than Solomon, the wisdom of God personified in Jesus Christ. He's your wisdom too. Behold the promised Messiah whom John heralded in the wilderness, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, who takes away your sin if you're in Christ. Behold the beloved Son of God and heir of all things given by the Father that we might know true forgiveness. And if you're in Christ, you know this forgiveness. And you're a co-heir with him, Scripture tells us. Behold the true vine who yielded the fruit of love, righteousness, and obedience all the way to the cross that he could impute his righteous record to you by grace through faith. Behold the cornerstone of salvation in the church, the only sure foundation in a world filled with sinking sand so that you have something to build your life on this day. Behold the exact imprint of God's nature, Hebrews 1, the perfect image of God made visible in Jesus Christ. It's in our beholding that we have any hope of rendering unto him the things that are his, giving ourselves more fully in glad submission to the one whose image we bear.